Wow. <laughs> um, moving away from my prepared text just for a minute, um, we've been here about four years, and it's a great honor to be up here as a part of this community, and I thank you for welcoming Mary and I into this community. It's been fabulous. And speaking of that community, we are all familiar with the story of Epiphany read from Matthew 2 every year at this time. I don't know if you noticed, it was a little longer than they usually read it today because we went through 18 verses rather than the normal 12, which is in the lectionary. But indeed, it was beautifully read by Anne and enacted by the All Souls cast on Wednesday night for our kids. Some of you were there. Um, it was complete with wise men dressed in Martin's varied colored chasubles, a real live baby Jesus who got a bit cranky, <laughs> and Martin filling in for Paul as a particularly ominous Herod the Great, not to mention a star, some guitar strumming shepherds, Joseph and Mary, and some angels. Of all that happened that night, what most impressed me, you should have seen the eyes of little Margot when the baby Jesus came in disguised as Michelle's red-headed baby, Anna. It was, it was amazing. Our pageant ended with the wise men, warned in a dream, exiting quietly in civil disobedience to King Herod's command to report him to the authorities when they found him. I can still hear Anne's rhetorical question to the children. What about Herod? Do you think? Did he come to worship the new king? The one he was so unhappy about? Nope. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I learned the hard way as a lawyer at trial. Not to assume anything is established, but everything you must lay a foundation. So... Now, after Jesus was born in Jerusalem, I'm sorry, born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. So, beginning to lay the foundation of Matthew 2, I ask, Why is the coming of the Magi to Bethlehem called Epiphany? We've all heard this so many times, and yet I didn't know how to answer that, really. Epiphany, a sudden intuitive perception of or insight into reality or the essential meaning of something, usually initiated by some simple homily or commonplace occurrence or experience. Hmm. Let's unpack that a little bit. A sudden perception into the reality or the essential meaning of something. You know... Einstein eating the apple, and suddenly he sees it. E equals mc squared. The rules of physics are totally changed. Einstein had had an epiphany. So in short, an epiphany, a light comes on, or a mystery is cracked wide open. So why are the events of Matthew 2 then called the epiphany? Epiphany. A Christian festival observed on January 6th commemorating the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles in the persons of the Magi. The passage we read in Isaiah gives us a glimpse of this epiphany, of the light that was turned on. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. 
the nations shall come to your light. And now we see the Magi coming to little Bethlehem in Israel asking, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose, and we have come to worship him. But for the Gentiles and the Jews alike, up until this point, the words of Isaiah were like a well-placed clue in a mystery which everyone missed while attempting to solve it. In our reading from Ephesians 3, Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, tells us more about this epiphany. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. God's plan for the Gentiles was not known. It was a mystery. Paul calls this the mystery of Christ. All of a sudden, for the Magi, the light comes on, and the mystery was solved. He is not merely the king of the Jews, but of the Gentiles. What is this mystery of Christ that Paul speaks of? Well, verse 6 says that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promises of Israel in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, there's a lot to unpack. After all, Paul says it is the gospel. Thank goodness we have Martin, we have Alan, we have Michael, Andrew, Mary, and so many others to help us with that. But there are a few things in this passage that I'd like to look at. Verse 9, the mystery of Christ is according to a plan. Verse 11, God was planning it from eternity. Verses 5 and 9, this plan was top secret until the wise men showed up. Verse 10, in fact, this plan wasn't even made known in the heavenly realms. Ah, the plan has cosmic dimensions. It is far bigger than just freeing the Jews from Roman oppression or setting Israel on top. It is even bigger than just reconciling all the nations to God. For as it is stated in Ephesians 1.10, God has made known now his plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul explains the end of this mysterious plan. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For, the reign, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his, that is Jesus' feet. So this is the light that came on. The sudden insight, the epiphany. At this little baby's birth, God has launched his plan to redeem the whole earth. All peoples, Jews and Gentiles alike. And to the end, the great rebellion, which has cost us all so dearly. And Bethlehem, like the beaches of Normandy on D-Day, marked the point at which the assault was launched. But the story in Matthew does not end as our children's version did on Wednesday night. Anne's notes state about that. Wise men depart back down the aisle and down the main stairs of the church to the undercroft. Joseph and Mary and the baby depart down the back stairs. Cookies 
will be served with the games. <laughs> but returning to Matthew 2, 3, when King Herod heard this, he was troubled, even terrified. Why? Herod the Great, whose Roman friends Octavian and Mark Anthony obtained for him the crown of Judah and ruled as king of the Jews, first under Julius Caesar and then Augustus from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. Herod the Great, who secured his throne by ruthlessly removing all his rivals, starting with his wife's family, first her grandfather, then her brother, then Miriam herself, and later, several of his ten wives' sons. Herod the Great, who though through his enormous secret police force brutally killed everyone suspected of plotting against him. Herod the Enlightened, who along with the Sadducees sought to bring this tiny backward kingdom into modern world of the Greeks and its, quote, higher culture. Building cities with amphitheaters and temples, among them the temple to Apollo and his greatest achievement, the temple in Jerusalem, upon which Herod hung the emblem of Roman rule, the eagle. But for all his accomplishments, even his friends had damp praise. Octavius, now Emperor Augustus, said of him, It is better to be Herod's dog than one of his children. And Josephus wrote, a man of great barbarity towards all men equally, and a slave to his passion, but above the consideration of what was right. With this throne secure, and his contempt for the backward traditions of the Jews, why would he be so troubled, so frightened, so terrified by the birth of a child who, according to the myths of the Jews, was to be the king? I am reminded here of the admonition of James 2.19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. But why? Returning to the text, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in the vicinity who were two years old or under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi's. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. It was not only his own sons that Herod sought to kill in his rage, but every male child under two, not only in Bethlehem, but in the surrounding environs. Again, why? What was behind this murderous rampage known as the slaughter of the innocents? And how does that tie into our epiphany story? Paul, who earlier in Ephesians had told the mystery of Christ, now instructs believers in chapter 6. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. With this in mind, in Revelation 12, John pulls back the curtain, and we are given a different perspective of what happened in Bethlehem that night. 
In his vision, the dragon stood in front of the woman and was about to give birth so that it might devour the child or devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child who, quote, will will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. In verse 17, John continues, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's command and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So in the heavenly picture of what took place in Bethlehem at the Epiphany, it was not Herod, stooge that he was, but Satan who was behind the murderous attack on the children. Again, why? Satan hates God and seeks to supplant him and destroy all that God loves. As Jesus taught, Satan is the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. What does God love? Adam's offspring, made in the image of God's likeness? That is why God says in Genesis 9-6 that he will hold a man accountable for the murder of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their uh, blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. The whole point of the epiphany is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever, Jew or Gentile, believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And this morning as I was listening to Alan, Alan made this one of many profound statements, actually, that in the picture of Eustis, he said, I will restore to you that damaged image which you cannot restore. So it's the image of God in this restoration that the epiphany is about. David Novak, a Jew reflecting after his encounter with John Paul II, captured well God's profound love for Adam's race. And he said that this is the common affirmation of Christianity and Judaism. It insists on a radical understanding of human dignity. Quote, The human person, male and female, is created in the image of God. That is our dignity. What we deserve as human beings, not because of anything we have done or could do, but because of what God has done, is doing, and will do for us. Novak continues, quote, Every human being is created in the image of God and thus selected for uniquely personal relationship with God. Here we see, and this is going on with a quote, here we see how election lies at the heart of human dignity. For God's first election was to create the human person in his image choosing the human person to be the unique object for God's concern. It was this truth of the value of humans to God who created... Let me start that again. And this is not a quote. It was this truth of the value of each human to the God who created and called them, according to John Paul II, so that it was this truth that threatened the Nazis in World War II, causing them to attempt to destroy both the Jews and the Catholic Church, and with what goal? With the goal of killing the God of Israel in the person of his people. See that connection that we saw in 
Revelation 12, Satan waiting there to destroy. It's right here again, killing God in the person of his people. So now we ask, what does this human dignity have to do with our epiphany story? Remember our fourth scripture, the reading from Psalm 72 this morning? It too spoke of the king of the Jews about to be born in Bethlehem. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and will save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence. For precious is their blood in his sight. There it is again, that human dignity popping up again in the reign of the righteous king who has come to save the world locked in darkness. But it was not just tyrants like Herod the Great that slaughtered the innocents. Throughout the Roman Empire, with the exception of Judaism, most or all of the competing religions allowed parents to kill newborn babies by strangulation or exposing them and for women to abort their unborn children as methods of population control, or if they were the wrong sex, or if they were handicapped. But not so for the Jews, or for the early Christians now following their righteous king. That radical understanding of human dignity, a dignity afforded every human that comes from being loved by God and made in his image, was carried out by the early church throughout the Roman Empire. There are many writings, letters, and petitions of early Christian philosophers and church fathers which equated abortion with infanticide and condemned both as murder. For example, in the Didache, an anonymous church manual of the first century, it commands, Thou shalt not murder a child by abortion or kill that which is begotten. Time permits me to mention only one more of the early writers. Tertullian, a lawyer, who became a Christian and a theological writer. The Apologeticum, which contained an introduction to Christianity for inquirers, set forth the early church's position on abortion in chapter 9, 6, stating, Murder, being once for all forbidden, we Christians may not destroy even the fetus in the womb. To hinder a birth is merely a speedier man-killing, Nor does it matter whether you take away a life that is born or destroy one that is coming to the birth. That is a man which is going to be one. You have the fruit already in the seed. So, one final question. What does this have to do with me today? The epiphany was the launch of God's offensive to take back this fallen and occupied world. However, as Paul warned us in Ephesians 6, the battle is not over, and the dragon continues to wage war on God's people. Nor has the slaughter of the innocents abated, and the 20th and the start of the 21st century is littered with enlightened Herods. Having lived under the totalitarian rule of the Nazis and then the communists, And with the backdrop of the scriptures, John Paul II believed that Hitler's extermination of the Jews, as well as the Nazis' efforts to destroy the Catholic Church, were both attempts to kill the God of Israel by annihilating his people. Sound familiar? 
as with the little baby Jesus born in Bethlehem, as with his followers in the early church, so we who follow the king today bring that radical ethic of the dignity of every human life to the public square. As in the days of Herod the Great, this truth originating from a different king is a threat to those regimes that have set themselves apart, set themselves up over God, and lay claim to absolute allegiance of their people. G.K. Chesterton once said, Fairy tales do not tell children that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed. Epiphany tells us that the dragon will be killed. And, that, and for that reason, Paul, after explaining the mystery of Christ, writes in Ephesians 3.13, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. So too, in light of the epiphany, let us follow the king and not lose heart, whatever suffering may come. Thank you.